This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Eating disorder recovery is the journey home to your true self. Valeria Tellez interviews Dr. Anita Johnston, the author of Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myth, Metaphor, and Storytelling. Anita Johnston, PhD, is a psychologist, storyteller, and author. Her book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, has been published in seven languages. She has been working in the field of women's issues, eating difficulties, and body image distress for over 35 years, and is currently the clinical director of iPono Hawaii, which has a residential treatment program in Maui and outpatient eating disorder programs in Honolulu. And she is the executive director of eating disorder programs for the Integrative Life Center in Nashville. She is the co-creator of the Light of the Moon Cafe, an interactive online women's circle, book club, or workbook for eating in the light of the moon. Dr. Johnston, a certified eating disorder specialist, provides virtual individual consultations, trainings, and conducts workshops around the world. She is best known for integrating metaphor and storytelling into her training as a clinical psychologist to explain the complex issues that underlie struggles with eating, exercise, and body image. Meet Dr. Anita at realizationconsulting.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Anita Johnston. In your own words, who is Dr. Anita Johnston? Ooh, a lot of different things. But ultimately, when I think of myself, I'm an indigenous Chamorro from the island of Guam. I'm a mother, I'm a psychologist, I'm a storyteller, and I'm a traveler. Are you implying traveling in this reality, traveling the world? But I think about humans as travelers, too, for some reason. Right. I, I think of traveling as in this world, but also in the world of imagination, Yeah, right. Do you connect imagination to intuition, Anita? I do. I think because imagination has the word image, right? So often our intuition comes to us through images that we experience in our mind's eye. So I think they are connected. They feel very different from my perspective than rational thoughts. Not just the content of thoughts, but it feels different. It's lighter. It's more expensive, I guess. That's the word I want to use. Right. For for me, intuition brings in 
multiple dimensions. So there are, there is what you perceive with your senses, and sometimes a little bit of analytical thought comes in, but it's it's very multidimensional for me. So my first official warm up question for you is healing. What is healing to you, and what are some of the misconceptions about healing? When I think of healing, I think of connection to your authentic self, to the nature of your being, to your soul, which then connects you with the soul of the world. The soul of the world. Would that be unconditional universal love, unconditional love or universal love? I would think so, yes. Do you connect the soul to the spirit? Are they the same? Do you use the same words? No, I don't. I, I think of spirit as being all that is. Soul has a little more of um personal aspect to it. So that right. the soul is the mediator, I think, between our everyday personality and spirit. Do you think it's possible to navigate the world in a human body from the spirit only, without the personality, the soul being part of it? I don't think so. I mean, when, when you think of how we use our language, we, when we talk about a soul without a body, we call them ghosts. Right. <laughs> yes. And so I yeah. think you do need the body and you need the mind, uh, but the soul is more than that. It's more than our body that we maneuver around in this three-dimensional reality uh, and the thoughts that we use to navigate. It's more than the sum of those parts. And that brings me to the question of spirituality. What's the meaning of spirituality to you? I think of spirituality as a way of moving through life that connects you with all that is. What is life and what is death to you? And also, what is the balance between them? <laughs> what would that look like? <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, this is something I have thought about every single day from the time I was a child. And I don't know that I'm any closer to the <laughs> answers because I'm not too sure that I really believe in death any longer. And life for me is vibrancy and, you know, yes, connection to this physical world, but also connection to the non-physical So when I think of death, it's simply that connection to the physical world may not be there, but I don't know for sure. What do you think is the purpose of the human experience? Why are we here? Well, I think we're here to grow and love and in doing so, uh, expand consciousness. And that expansion of consciousness What would that look like? What would you say in this reality? What would that be like when we are there, if there is a destination for that? Well, I see it as multidimensional and interconnected so that we would connect to the mythological world and the, and the mystical world and the world of the imagination as well as this everyday physical reality that we engage in. But they would be interconnected and interpenetrating and we would be able to move more seamlessly between those worlds. And that brings me to the topic that you speak about in your book, one of, of which, the feminine and the masculine coming together, the marriage. 
as you use that word too. So that's a wonderful uh, vision. I love when you say imagination because that it brings me to a different space. That's what I did when I was reading your book. It was a different? It just everything became different. Even the room I was in changed. Yes, it's it's interesting because I speak in metaphor and I and stories, and this is what Carl Jung had said about the use of metaphor is that it affects us on multiple levels. There's the mental level where we in, interpret the meaning. There's the emotional level where we feel what is being communicated. And then there is the imaginative level. And according to him, it's at the imaginative level that the transforming power of metaphor resides. And so uh, I use imagination a lot for that, for that reason. So in a way, it creates this, Space, more space, right, Anita? Mm -hmm. That's what it mm -hmm. is for change, mm -hmm. for healing, for renewal. Exactly. And we can see better. I love that. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. How did you come to this type of work? Talk to me a bit about that. Well, I, the work with stories has come from growing up in a, a multicultural household where often lessons were communicated through story. And then many years later, my daughters were going to Waldorf schools and things were being taught in story. They, they would come home with stories about Prince Division and Prince Multiplication. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I realized, oh, I would know my time skills by now if I had learned it that way. True. <laughs> and then working with women who were struggling with eating, I discovered that as I was trying to help them understand the complexity of what underlies the eating behaviors, I found that story could help. And so that's how the work began. When I think about healing or when I think about focusing in the present moment, that's what I think of, like an engaging, compelling story that always brings me back to the moment. What is your understanding of freedom? What is to be free from your perspective? Oh my, that's one of my favorite things to explore is freedom because it's been an ongoing quest of mine. I think what it is is to be free from the conditioned mind so that you can be present, uh, fully present in the moment because that's where choice exists. Does it mean belief systems, Anita? That's what you're saying. What, what we've been taught about what is true or what is correct or, you know, what is right. And it interferes with us taking each moment as it comes and responding directly to it. So we make up mm -hmm. stories, given our conditioning, about what this means and what that means. And quite often, they may be pretty good stories for a three-year-old or a five-year-old or a 10-year-old, but that doesn't mean that they're true. Would you say that there is a truth or only our truth? I think there's both. I think there is a grounding fundamental truth about what is real. But then I think oh, each of us have our own truth as far as what that specific meaning is for us in any given situation. And what would that truth be? It's hard to put into words because for me, there's a resonance. Truth has a resonance right. so that you feel it. Then you can make sense out of it, uh, hopefully, with your intellect. <laughs> right. but, but typically, it's a feeling if something is right, if something is true. For me, it has been love. 
that's my reference. So I'm wondering, I was just wondering if that resonates. I ask the question to a lot of my guests, is that really the fundamental truth about life, unconditional love? And I get the yes, <laughs> a lot of yes. So maybe that's not the idea of love we have, right, Anita? It's uh, beyond that. Right, because I think love isn't simply a feeling, right. an emotion. It's so much more than that. Your book is written for women. So would you say that would help men too? The title of your book is Eating in the Light of the Moon, How Women Can Transform Their Relationships with Food Through Myth, Metaphor, and Storytelling. Yes, men, I, I've gotten emails from men from around the world, actually, has, telling me, and at first I was surprised by this, telling me that they found the book was really helpful for them. But as time has gone on, I've, I've come to understand that the way I see struggles with eating is an imbalance with the inner masculine and feminine, which exists in men as well as women. And I wasn't as clear about that when I wrote the book as I am now. Talk to me about how you became a writer and what was the main intention of writing your book? <laughs> well, in my family, it was a joke. If you if you got a letter from Anita, frame it because you'll never get another one. So I've never considered myself a writer. The book wrote me. And so it started with my trying to explain some concepts to clients uh, that I was working with in my private practice. And they kept asking me, where can I read more about this? Where can I read more? And that's when I realized, oh, I think I need to write about this. And so initially it started off as a booklet for my clients, but then it grew itself. And the stories came to me, the healing stories. And as they came, I incorporated them and it evolved over a period of 10 years. Why did you choose to become a psychologist, Anita? And also, how did you, your interest in disordered eating start? Well, I, I think the psychology part just came from my curiosity. I just couldn't help myself. I, I, I kept wondering why do people think certain ways or react certain ways or feel certain ways, especially growing up in a multicultural household. So I recognized that things that would mean one thing in one culture would mean something else in another. So I think early on as a child, I was very curious about that. And eventually I discovered there was a field <laughs> called psychology where you could study this. So it was, it was a period of time that, uh, that I just kept exploring and just kept getting more and more curious. And I was interested in, in women's issues because I came from a, a very matriarchal family. And historically, the Chamorro culture that I'm from was matrilineal. So I was always interested in women's issues. And at one point, I was supervising a psychology intern that was doing her doctoral dissertation on uh, the incidence of eating disorders in Hawaii. And we, the more we talked about it, I realized what a compelling issue this was for so many women yeah. who were struggling with food and body image. And then I realized how pervasive it was. And so that began my work exploring uh, that struggle. I guess the starting point um, on that for our conversation would be a passage in your book where you say, I think this is the introduction, you say, it is impossible to discuss the causes for disordered eating without questioning the experience of being female in our society today. So talk to me about that. 
Well, when I first started working with with women, I was working with this intern and we realized there was a problem and we kept saying, well, there's such a big problem here. There should be a center for this. Now, this was a long time ago. This is 1982. There weren't centers for this. (laughs) So we looked at each other and we laughed and, and, (laughs) and we said, well, I guess that's us. And so when I created the center... Uh, girls and women of all ages, all ethnicities, all sizes, all struggling with eating and body in some way started showing up. And so my curiosity was, well, what is it? First of all, why is it females? Back then, no males showed up. That's not the case today. Why is it these particular girls and women? And why is the struggle around eating and body? And so as a storyteller, what I realized is that these girls and women were like the child in the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. And in that story, we have a very vain emperor who doesn't care much about ruling his kingdom. He's only interested in fine clothing and jewelry, and he has a reputation for this. And so a couple of con artists come into town, and they pretend to be tailors, and they say, our clothing is so fine, only those fit for their station in life can even see it. So the emperor was impressed by this. He commissioned a whole new wardrobe. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone who worked for the emperor went on and on about the magnificent clothing because They didn't want him to think they weren't fit for their position. And even the emperor himself carried on. And so eventually the con artists, they leave town and there's this grand procession and where the emperor is wearing his new outfit. But of course, he's totally naked. (sighs) And all the townspeople are ooing and aahing and carrying on about the magnificent clothing. But there's a child in the audience that says in a very loud voice, Mm. Mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And this created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. What I discovered is these girls and women were like that child in that they had an uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities. And what I mean by this is they could read between the lines, see the bigger picture, perceive hypocrisy, sense when things were not okay, even if everyone around them said they were fine. But because their life wasn't a fairy tale, they felt like there was something wrong with them. And that's where the disordered eating began. They began with their trying to find out, okay, what is it that's wrong with me? And eventually, somewhere along the line, they went on a diet and they stumbled across this idea, oh, I know what's wrong with me. I like food too much or I'm the wrong size. And that's how it began with them trying to dim their light to diminish this capacity to perceive subtle realities because what they wanted more than anything else what all of us want more than anything else is a sense of belonging which they confused with fitting in it's not the same thing it that sounds to me like uh, that we are trying to create a new problem so we can focus on that and bury the other ones Exactly. The, the metaphor I like to use for that is, is of the red herring. So that's a term used in literature for the distracting element, right? right. Who killed the old lady? Is it the maid, the butler, or the chauffeur? Right. And everyone's watching the maid because she's so strange. But at the end of the story, there's a twist. It was the butler who nobody suspected because everyone was watching the maid. Right. Well, with disordered eating, that's the maid. That's the distracting element that keeps us from finding out the real culprit. In your book, you talk about the difference between physical and emotional hunger. That is an interesting passage to read. And and you also talk about spiritual hunger. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, at chapter five, you talk about addiction, spiritual, and emotional hunger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear from you more about that, Anita. Yes, that's where the, the fun begins. This is why I love doing this work. Again, using your imagination, right? Imagine two tanks, tank A, tank B, for lack of a better word. And tank A is the tank you fill when you need physical nourishment. You fill it with food. But tank B is the tank you feel when you need emotional or spiritual nourishment and you fill it with things like attention, affection, appreciation, meditation, prayer, and so on. But what happens is we think there's just one tank. So before we know it, tank A is full and overflowing, but we're still hungry or we're afraid to even get close to tank A because it seems like the bottomless pit. And so... What has to happen is we have to learn how to tease the two tanks apart because no amount of food will ever fill tank B. And you tease the two apart by learning interoceptive awareness, learning to read your body states, knowing when you're hungry and when you're full and finding the sensations that will tell you that as opposed to some kind of diet. But for the sake of imagination, let's imagine you've learned that. And you know that when you're eating, when you're not hungry or not letting yourself eat when you are. So let's say you're reaching for the pizza and you've learned to look for your hunger signal and there's not a hunger signal in sight, but you still want that pizza. Well, that means you've just tumbled down Alice in Wonderland's rabbit hole and landed smack dab in tank B in the world of metaphor. Because in tank B, pizza is not pizza. Food is not food. What is it? It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and probably don't even know about. So the question to ask yourself is, okay, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel? And maybe you do a scan of your day to see if, if you're still ticked off at the jerk who cut you off on the freeway or, or if you're concerned about a parent-teacher meeting that's coming up or annoyed at something your boss said. And you do a scan of your day. But more often than not, what happens is you, when you ask yourself, what am I feeling? The answer is, mm, I don't know. I feel fine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because we don't know sometimes, but guess what? The food will tell you. The food itself is talking to you. The food that you want to eat when you're not hungry or you don't eat when you are hungry. And they're loaded with meaning for you, but it's coded meaning. And to get the message, you have to crack the code. And so the way you crack the code, of course, we're all different. But here's a general categories that help people learn to listen to what the food themselves is, are trying to say. So sweet foods usually have to do with either feeling like you're not sweet enough or there's not enough sweetness in your life. Oh. Crunchy, salty foods are often connected with unexpressed anger and frustration. You want to bite someone's head off. Wow. Warm foods are connected to a longing for emotional warmth. Uh, Spicy foods, whether it's a fear of or a desire for, are often related to excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, we know this from Valentine's Day, love, romance, sensuality, and sexuality. And so what can happen is that once you can understand the deeper meanings of these foods for you, 
then you can start to see what those other hungers are. That is very useful. I'm just thinking about the raisins that I put in my um, oatmeal. I'm putting way too many these days. <laughs> so that means something. Well, you might look to see, uh, you know, if you were to describe raisins to an extraterrestrial, for example, who's never had raisins before, and you describe them, then go back and look at the words you used, and you'll see which ones have energy around them. That's a great way to see there what is hidden, right? Mm -hmm. It, it is hidden. Right. And this only works if you're eating when you're not hungry or not eating when you are physically hungry. In those instances, food is just food. But in the other instances, it's a metaphoric communication from a larger part of yourself, the part I would call your soul self. I would love to hear more also about these, uh, the feminine and masculine attributes. What are they and how do we learn to balance them within ourselves? Because I think the balance is, is key. I use the words masculine and feminine, even though it's very confusing and, and it has nothing to do with gender. It's in other cultures, they might say yin and yang. But the masculine and feminine principles exist in all of us, regardless if we're male, female, um, however we identify, trans, it doesn't matter. If you think of the yin-yang symbol, where you have those two shapes, one light with a dark spot in it, one dark with a light spot, and they're interconnected, but they're also interpenetrating. And so the reason I use masculine and feminine is that uh, from in the Jungian tradition, there's a lot of emphasis on dreams. And in dreams, the masculine energy shows up in the form of a male figure and the feminine energy shows up as a female figure. That's why I, I use that language, even though it is very confusing. And, and it seems like we're dealing with a binary. And essentially, we are But that's because we think in those terms initially, and the idea is to move beyond the binary. So the masculine part of ourselves is that logical, linear goal achievement part of ourselves that, that likes to analyze things and is very useful. It's yeah. a very valuable part of ourselves. Right. The feminine is the more emotional, instinctual, intuitive, relational part of ourselves. The reason why I think this imbalance plays a part with eating difficulties is that we all live in a culture where thing, this has been out of balance for thousands and thousands of years, where the masculine principle has been overvalued and the feminine undervalued. Now that's changing now, it's starting to shift. But I think what's even more important is What happens when you consciously and deliberately bring these two energies into balance is you create a third, a third part, which is your conscious awareness, which launches you into another dimension. So I have a question for you about this balance between the feminine and masculine. Did this ever happen in the history of the human species? Well, I think it had this balance between masculine and feminine, although it doesn't exist in the culture at large, it does exist within us, within mm -hmm. our psyches. So, right. for example, the way I wrote my book was by balancing the masculine and feminine. And I had learned uh, this technique and I had been 
wanting to write a book for a long time. Whenever I was talking to clients or driving, I would have these ideas. But as soon as I would sit down to write, they would disappear. (laughs) They would be gone. And so I was so frustrated that I remembered this exercise. And I thought, okay, I'm going to see how I can bring this into balance. And so what I did is I looked at this polarity with inside of myself and discovered that my feminine was the more carefree, fun-loving side, and my masculine was the more professional, perfectionistic side. And my carefree, fun-loving side said, oh, you've been asking the wrong side to write the book. I'm going to write the book. And my other side said, are you kidding me? You don't even return phone calls as soon as (laughs) as you should. This is a professional book. And so the fun-loving feminine side said, I'll make a deal. First, take me windsurfing, because that's what I love to do Mm -hmm. at the time. And then when we come back, sit down, and I'll help you write the book. But here's the other part. Don't read what's been written. So I thought this was the weirdest thing. I thought it was so strange, but I was desperate. So I went out. I went windsurfing and came back and (laughs) sat down with a yellow pad, and it just flowed and flowed and flowed and flowed. Mm -hmm. And I put it away. And then later, I went back to look at it, and I read it. I went, oh, this is good. So basically, this is why this book about disordered eating is fairy tales and folk tales from around the world. But the underpinnings, the other side got to come in and make sure that it was theoretically sound. That would say, okay, Anita, Freud did not say that the dreams were the unconscious. He said they were the royal road to the unconscious. Get that straight. And it would block the I's and cross the T's and get rid of dangling participles. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example of how bringing these two into balance can create something that sounds like a fun dance, a playful dance, yes, it doesn't is. it? It is, actually. Once <laughs> you can bring an end to the war, because often they're yeah. fighting. Right. And when they wow. fight, the masculine, because it has the, the back of its the culture, yeah. it fights like the British red coats, right? Wow. Front and center, big guns, because it knows right. what's right and what's wrong. The feminine side, when she fights, she's more like guerrilla warfare. She waits and waits until the other side is tired and or distracted, and boom, she'll come in and, and do what right. she wants and then get out of there, and, and then, you know, the war begins. <laughs> so true. That's wonderful, Anita, that you're open to that discovery, to that journey, because it's not an easy one. No, it's not. But but when you start to work with metaphor and play with this balance, mm-hmm. it does get to be fun. So what I have seen is that people that struggle with disordered eating, they're like what I call lopsided lobsters. The eel lives in a hole in the reef in the ocean, and the lobster makes its home at the mouth of this hole. And it's a great arrangement for the eel because it has a lobster on its doorstep with one antenna going out, keeping an eye out for predators. Mm -hmm. But it's way more complicated for lobsters because eels eat lobsters. So what the lobster has to do is have one antenna going out and keeping an eye out for predators outside, but the other has to tune into what's going on with the eel. So what I found is people that struggle with disordered eating are like lopsided lobsters in that they have an exquisite, amazing, incredible outer antenna. They can walk into a room, pick up on the vibe, know what people expect of them, provide that before those people even know that that's what's going on. 
but they have lousy inner antennas. So the process of, of recovery is putting that outer antenna on automatic pilot, serves them the rest of their lives, and then put all their emphasis on creating a stronger inner antenna, learning what their hunger and satiety feels like, but also changing the questions they ask. Instead of saying, what's he going to think if I do this? How is she going to react if I say this? What do they think about the way I'm handling the situation? They need to ask, how do I feel about what she just said? Mm. What's my reaction to what he did? What's it like for me to be here with these people at this point in time? So they start tuning in, tuning in, and then they become a balanced lobster. Do you offer online sessions? And also talk to me about the center that you have in Hawaii, the iPono, and what the meaning of Pono too. We talked briefly off record about it. Okay. iPono is my residential eating disorder program in Maui. And I also have an outpatient program in Honolulu. And Aipono is a Hawaiian word. I is the word for food, nourishment, and eating. And Pono is a really important word in the Hawaiian language because it has to do with, with making things right in terms of body, mind, spirit, and in just living your life in the way that's in balance. So that's the name of the program. And it's a small eight-bed residential facility. On, like I said, on the island of Maui. Then we have, for Hawaii residents, we have an online IOP, mm. intensive outpatient program. So that's, it's been my joy to be able to create a program that is filled with storytelling and meaning and metaphor. I also uh, have my online program, which is the Light of the Moon Cafe, where we have women from around the world gather. We, we have eight-week segments where every single day we have a different activity. So it might be like day one would be this chapter where we're reading chapter seven uh, this week in Eating in the Light of the Moon. Then the next day might be an audio of me telling the story. Then the next day might be story questions where you can see how that applies more directly to your life. The next day might be a audio of a metaphor. Then the next day might be a drawing or writing activity. And then the next day might be a playlist of inspiring songs. And so we do this week after week. And then we have an online forum where people support each other and post their comments and questions. I respond to everything on the forum and we have a handful of live calls. So it's really, for me, it's a thought of fun. And it's extraordinary to watch these women from all over the world develop insights and intuitions. And there's nothing like a circle of women to support each other. Thank you so much for sharing this important work with us and engaging so actively in healing. I really appreciate that, Anita. You mentioned in the book the labyrinth, labyrinth of recovery, and the difference between a labyrinth and a maze. Yes. That was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So labyrinths have been used as metaphors for life in, for thousands and thousands of years. And 
I found that that was the same for the recovery from disordered eating is that there's lots of twists and turns. Often what I do to help people understand this is, is I say, try to move through it as quickly as you can. And they can't because they get disoriented or frustrated. But if you slow down, all you have to do is slow down, put one foot in front of the other, you will get not to the end, you get to the center of your being, and then you get to find your way out. So with recovery, it's a journey, learning how to connect with your true self, and then exit into the world, staying connected to that true self. So a maze, on the other hand, has blocks and, in, you know, wrong turns and you have to backtrack and you and people use the word relapse and they have yeah. to go back again. And what I found is the recovery journey is actually very different from that. There, It may be overwhelming and it may be frustrating, but there are no wrong turns. Mm. Everything is an opportunity to learn. And even though you may think that, oh my gosh, I thought I finished with my mother issues. It's like, well, well, you're you're back here, but you're here in a different place at a different level of understanding. And so we often will visit and revisit certain issues, but but each as we spiral upward rather than at the same old, same old place. It sounds like a very compassionate approach, self-compassion and compassion. I think compassion and curiosity, they're the keys to recovery. And I love the way you say it too. In the book, you say eating disorder recovery is a journey home to your true self, which you just mentioned. Uh, so true. I love chapter 11. You, you talk about intuition, the inner seeing, hearing, knowing. I love the quote you have there. Women seem to be naturally more intuitive because their biology forces them to remain connected to their bodies and their emotions. And you said something about, yeah, this was very interesting to me. Women who are addicted to eating or dieting are terrified of their bodies. That was, yeah, shocking to me in a way. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? Because right. when you live in a culture that overvalues the masculine principle, those that embody the feminine principle get devalued. And then that devaluation gets internalized and women are raised to hate their bodies just the way they are. They're supposed yeah, to yeah. look like, and strangely enough, you know, the, the image of um, it's more masculine in terms of, of what the body is supposed to be rather than the soft, round curves that come naturally to women's bodies. Yes, and this is something that I have learned to deal with myself. Yeah, I look very masculine. Some people say I'm strong, but I have done that on purpose when I was very, very out of balance and trying to become stronger. And then that was my metaphor, the body. And when you think about what it takes to give birth, there's no greater strength than that. So it's kind of ironic yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we don't even recognize that, what's all involved with the woman's body doing that. Do you believe that this is valuing femininity of women, embracing that? Is this coming back, this value, or we still yeah, have a yes. long way to go? I, I think we have a long way to go, but honestly, I'm amazed that I've lived, to, I've lived to see what we're seeing today with the Me Too movement and, you know, the, the women claiming the power of the feminine, men claiming the power of the feminine, everyone claiming the power of the feminine. I didn't think 
that I would see that so soon. And it is happening. When I wrote the book, that was 25 years ago. This was not a concept. It was not even yeah, mentioned. It wasn't, not much in some circles, right. but not a whole lot. And that's why what I discovered is when I used metaphors to explain the journey, the feminine in everyone would respond to it. So, uh, for example, people often are, just say disparaging things to themselves about their bodies, about what they do with food. And so once I can explain that, well, of course, that's what you do and how to get to a different place through metaphor, then they can get it because it's the feminine that gets that imagery. So often I'll tell a story. Imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip and you fall in and you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids. And along comes a big log and you grab on. And the log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there you can see the riverbank, but you can't let go of the log. So you can't swim to shore. And this is the experience of uh, struggles with eating is that when our bodies is that we at times have felt like we were drowning in very strong emotional currents. And so we grab onto the struggle, interestingly enough, with eating that does keep us afloat. It keeps us from drowning in turbulent emotional waters. But then we feel stuck with it. And always there's someone on the riverbank yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. <laughs> and you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go. Well, the irony here is the very thing that saved your life is keeping you from going where you want to go in life. It's important to understand that and to understand that it has served a function and an important function. And it would behoove you to find out what that function is. What do you do instead, right? Because if you let go of the log, start to swim to shore, get halfway there and discover you don't have the strength to make it, now you're really in trouble. That means you don't have the strength back to the log either and you're really sunk. And I happen to believe there's a wise part of ourselves mm -hmm. that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. Mm -hmm. So right. what do you do instead? Well, let go of the log and try floating. And when you start to sink, grab back on. Then you let go of the log and you try treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. Right. And then you swim around the log once, grab back on. Twice, grab back on. Ten times, a hundred times, two hundred times. Right. Whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to make it to shore. Then you let go of the log because you see it serves no function any longer. Once you develop the skills that you need to cope with this crazy world that we live in right. <laughs> that tells us right. we should have this, that kind of body or, right. or whatever. And so the idea is that there are skills, but you can learn them and there's skills of awareness and consciousness that'll help you get where you want to go in life. And yeah, the curiosity you talk about that for me resonated going within, not being afraid, being courageous enough. Yeah, that would definitely become resilience, a kind of resilience. I call it spiritual resilience, not, not just emotional or 
or the regular one that, you know, we humans can have, but it's deeper. And I love the the metaphor of water. Yeah, this uh, mm. going deeper, right? We don't mm-hmm. know the depth of that, uh, the ocean. Right. Right? I'm an island girl, so I think <laughs> in, in, in water yeah. metaphors, and I really think that, especially when it comes to emotion, because they are waves. Emotions are waves yeah. of energy. Right. They come in, they peak, and they pass. They come in, they peak, and they pass. And if you try to block them, like if you went mm. to the ocean shore and stood there with your boogie board and tried to block them, you're going to get knocked down, right? And so you get this idea, oh, I can ride this and here comes another one. I can ride that. It gets to be fun. And when the big set comes in, and it comes in for all of us who are on the planet any length of time, whether it's financial distress, loss of a loved one, a medical crisis, you'll know how to ride it because you understand how to ride the energy of the waves and and that we aren't the waves we're the ocean mm, and what yeah. we know about the ocean is no matter how turbulent it is if you dive deep enough it's quiet and it's calm yes getting to know our own depth right mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. scares us for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love your wisdom anita thank you it's uh, yeah, it's profound and true to me very much true I love your questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the encouragement. I love what I do. Boy, I love this. <laughs> so we're almost at the end and I have these few questions for you, the ending questions. But before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Well, one thing that I would like to say, and I believe this with every fiber in my being, I've been working with folks struggling with disordered eating for over 35 years. And what I've come to see, and I really believe this, is they're the ones the world has been waiting for. Because they are by nature emotionally sensitive, highly intuitive. And what comes with that is a great deal of compassion and empathy. And the world right now is sorely in need of that. And so I stand in honor for those that are willing to walk this labyrinthian journey. I applaud them because they receive their own gifts that they've been given, which are also the gifts they've come to give to the world. Right. Yes, a billion times, yes, yeah. I have experienced that myself and I see people around me. Mm-hmm. So talented, so beautiful, but still, yeah, struggling with that, mm-hmm. learning how to swim, <laughs> per se. Mm-hmm. I love when you say it's a timing thing. Yeah, we are at a different level, so it's important to honor that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's worth it. It, it. Sometimes it's very difficult, but there is joy in the recovery journey. When you connect with your true self, everything lightens up. Not Everything becomes more enlightened, not simply in terms of illumination, where you can see things more clearly, but also in terms of levity, where, where things lighten up and it gets to be fun. That's a huge sign, isn't it? It's fun. It's related to lightness, being light. And mm-hmm. light relates to elevated mm-hmm. energies mm-hmm. and vibrations, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Wow. So two more questions for you. What is another word for healing? Healing. I would say the other word for healing is wholeness. Yes. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? I know that it's extraordinary. It's complex and it's multidimensional. 
Thank you so much, Anita, again, for your beautiful, genuine presence, compassionate work, and healing ideas, the way you express yourself in the world and how you affect us. I mean, it's amazing how when we think we are there, we are not there yet. We are healed. I'm like, oh, my God, reading this, I have to go back. Uh, for you. Yes, right. Interesting. So thank you for the reminder, too. Oh, I just said thank you for your work of taking this out into the world. Oh, I love this. Yeah, thank you for the encouragement and our collaboration in healing. So before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Well, you can find me at my website, DrAnitaJohnston.com, D-R-A-N-I-T-A-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. And you can find more about my online courses, which is the Light of the Moon Cafe. So that's lightofthemooncafe.com. I have interactive courses and self-study courses. And also I provide individual consultations. And from time to time, if if you so find yourself in Hawaii or ah. if you're seeking residential treatment for an eating disorder, you can find me at iponohawaii.com. Thank you so much again, Anita, and we'll talk soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Anita Johnston and her work, please visit DrAnitaJohnston.com, LightOfTheMoonCafe.com, and iPono.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>